Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about photography and form. On today's episode, I have a completely inspiring conversation with the designer, educator, and photographer Martin Vineski. Martin has operated Appetite Engineers since 1997, where his often uh, experimental uh, kind of typographic work ranges from books to installations to editorial illustrations. And while operating the studio in parallel since 1993, he's taught at the California College of Art in San Francisco and recently has been focusing on his photography work that consists of these uh, really incredible large-scale kind of collages and images. In this episode, Martin and I mostly talk about form and practice. At CCA, he's taught this class on form and image making that has become uh, somewhat well-known and I think a sort of borrowed uh, class. I actually had a class that was inspired by Martin's form class when I was in, in grad school. But we talk about the the ideas behind that class and the importance in making and the value in producing images to discover new aesthetics and forms. And I felt like I just came away from from this conversation completely inspired and ready to get back to work. We also talk about his uh, career and his time at Cranbrook and how that's influenced all the work that he's done since, whether that is the design work or the teaching or even the photography. And we talk about this new focus on photography. John Sueda, who is another uh, former Scratching the Surface guest, recently kickstarted a book of Martin's photo work. And so we talk about that and how that's influencing his practice today. This is one of those really inspiring and encouraging conversations. I've always admired uh, Martin's process and the, um, the honestly, the fun that it looks like he's having. And I think we captured some of that in this episode. I think you're really going to enjoy it. If you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism, as well as the previews of the upcoming episodes. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships, so if you like the show and want to help with its ongoing production, I hope that you consider joining. Thank you so much for listening and enjoy this conversation with Martin Vineski. I want to talk about the work that you're doing now and, and the career that, that you've had, but I have a couple of questions about uh, your education and your background before we kind of get into the stuff that you're doing now. And so you studied, uh, you went to Dartmouth and you, you got a BA in something called visual studies in the late 70s. Yeah. And I want to know what visual studies was um, and what kind of careers you were thinking about or what that meant to you at the time when you were finishing high school going to college okay well um originally uh back when i was in high school uh, my mom wanted me to go to an art school because Mm. i was pretty good in art you know i could draw things like that but i didn't believe that that was a reasonable career uh, and so okay. I had to be like the parent and say, no, mom, I, I, cause I was also good in math. And so I said, no, I need to go get a math degree. That's really, that's really where the future is. That's so funny. So, yeah. And so I, I found a school, uh, that, that allowed for a double major. So when I started at Dartmouth, uh, 
I was a double major in math and art. Mm. Uh, eventually, the math uh, went away. Uh, as it moved into pure theory, I became much less interested in it. And mm. so I ended up being there in what they did call visual studies, which was their name for art. But, you know, honestly speaking, at least at the time, it was not the right school to go for that. Uh, but I didn't know. I didn't even know about like the, the possibility of transferring to another school. I was very naive. Uh, and so I, I just figured, well, this is where I am. So I just have to do this. Uh, and so I did. And it, it, it was, I, bet, I think at the time, the department was pretty antiquated in the fact that even then, this was, I graduated in 79. Uh, they did not include photography, for example, as mm. uh, as a legitimate art. So there was nothing taught uh, along those lines. It was all, you know, painting and drawing and sculpture and those kinds of things. Uh, at the same time, I was also working in the design office there uh, mm. because I kind of knew my way around typography. I knew some things about that just from my own upbringing. And so I was doing design work um, as a, a part-time job while I was taking the fine art classes. And was design a word you would have used or known? Like, did you know, you, you said you were kind of good with typography. You kind of knew your way around that. Did you know that design was a, a thing that you could do? Or how did that kind of uh, come into your life? Huh. Well, okay. So that, that all started way back when I was very little. Uh, my uncle was a, a, a cartographer, a map uh, maker. Oh, interesting. And yeah. And that was back when you had to do maps by hand. And so there was inking <laughs> involved yeah. and there were sheets of like all the names of all the cities that he had to cut out with adhesive backing and put on the map by hand. Uh, and these were for like National Geographic and for textbooks and things. Uh, but he also was a calligrapher and he bought me a like junior calligraphy set. This is back mm. in uh, about like 65, 66. And I still have the speedball book that he gave me. And I just practiced drawing letters uh, because that's what he did. And right. so from all from way back then, all the way through, I kind of knew about type and typography, at least in a decorative sense. Um, so I, I didn't really know about, I, I think at the time when I was, uh, an undergrad design and advertising were pretty much tied together, at mm -hmm. least from my understanding. And I was in a bit of a quandary because I didn't really want to go into advertising, <laughs> yeah. but I kind of felt like that was the only thing that I would be able to do. So, uh, I, I got an internship at an ad agency uh, mm -hmm. in Washington, D.C. And th there, while I was working there, they had a subscription to Pushpin Graphic. Okay. And yeah, and that was the first time I ever saw this magazine or even heard of, of Seymour Schwast and Milton Glaser. Mm -hmm. And I was just stunned. This was an incredible magazine uh, that was all self-generated uh, with friends of theirs, illustration and, and writing and all kinds of things. And I just, I, 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 I stole their copies of the magazine <laughs> <laughs> nice. uh, because I, I loved it so much. And, and that's really what I wanted to do. That was like a dream uh, mm -hmm. to do that. But I couldn't really see a way from like 
what I was doing at college into making that a career. But that right. was that was my first really understanding of a kind of design office where they do those sorts of things. I have like two more questions about that kind of early part of your career, and I don't mean to to skim over all of it. Um, <laughs> although you did <laughs> say before you started recording <laughs> that it wasn't that interesting. Um, but I, I I was fascinated that you decided to go to Cranbrook for your MFA in the ninety like in the early nineties. So you, there, there was like a ten year gap between almost a, or a little over a 10 year gap between your undergrad and your your graduate education and in an interview i had read with you to, to prepare for this you had mentioned that you had actually applied earlier and and the mccoy said you're not ready um you know you're you're in but you would benefit later and so i'm kind of curious about why why you applied when you did earlier and then why you then decided to go back 10 years later what was kind of happening in your life that you're like I, I want this this new education right okay so <laughs> <laughs> um when i was at dartmouth there was one of uh, a uh, visiting artist there uh, she taught uh her name is lorna ritz mm -hmm. and she was very influential to me uh, she was a kind of young, wild spirit, which really didn't fit in with the the department. And she didn't last there very long, but she w had gone to Cranbrook. Okay. And she told me about that. I had never heard of the school before. And at the time, there really weren't that many graduate programs around in design. But she knew mm -hmm. I was interested in in that kind of thing. And her like last words to me before I graduated were go to Cranbrook. Oh, so, wow. I, yeah, and I'm one of those people who just like, okay, she said to yeah. go to Cranbrook. So I guess <laughs> that's what I'll do. Uh, right. And, but, but, you know, after I graduated, I came home uh, to, I, I lived in the uh, Maryland suburbs of Washington, DC. Okay. And my mom said, okay, now you have to get a job. Here's, here are the classifieds, go find a job. <laughs> I didn't know anything about like using your college connections or, you know, developing that sort of thing. I figured, okay, when you graduate, that's what you do. And so I had a right. series of horrifying jobs, uh, mostly through the government or, or government contracts. Okay. And then I decided uh, around 1980, that was just a year to like, let me apply, let me apply to Cranbrook and just see. So I did. And I went out there for an interview and Kathy McCoy was there and she did. She, they actually were willing to let me in. They accepted mm. me. But but she said I'd have to do a pretty intensive reading program over the summer to get me ready, because where I had gone undergrad, there was no kind of theory. There was no thinking about design right. at all. Right. And I decided that I wasn't ready for all that i was i thought maybe i better like keep my career as it may be uh going for a while uh and then you know that just kept going and then i eventually moved to san francisco and i just had a series of jobs that i did not like at all and um, I, I started seeing, you know, I was doing design and it was very pedestrian. It was like 25 cent off coupons, things like that, right. Uh, right. believe it or not. And uh, while that was happening, 
I started seeing this other kind of design happening. This is right when Emigre was beginning mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and David Carson's work. You start seeing that in magazines. And I thought that's what that's where I want to be. But there was no way to get from where I was doing this very mundane pedestrian work to this interesting work. There was no way to just jump over. And I felt pretty forlorn. Uh, You know, I was, I was paid pretty well and I felt like, Oh, I, you know, I lost my opportunity. That time in 1980 was my big chance. Now I'm too old. Uh, That was all in my mind. Um, Mm -hmm. But then, but then really one day, sitting in my apartment in San Francisco, it just struck me just, and I remember exactly like where I was sitting that maybe you could still go. And the next day I called up Cranbrook and asked if they accepted older students. And they said, (laughs) yes, of course. In fact, most of our students are older. At this, at this point, I was only like 30. It's not like, you know, I was 70 or something. Uh, And so I applied, I applied uh, right away. Uh, but I didn't get in because at that time, then my portfolio was filled with coupons, Uh, right. And sales kits. So, uh, I had to take a whole year and take night classes, which I did, uh, uh, down in Santa Cruz. So I had to drive an hour down to take classes at night and then come back, do the homework and go to work. I did that for a year to build up a portfolio. In the meantime, one of the classes I took was a weekend workshop with Lucille Tanasis, who was here in San Francisco at the time. And uh, I met her and we talked and she had gone to Cranbrook. Uh, And so I was able to kind of scrape together a, a halfway decent portfolio. And she agreed to write a letter on my behalf and I finally got in. So, mm. <laughs> and then I, I never looked back, let's just say. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely seems like Cranbrook was a, a big turning point in your career, but also in kind of shaping how you think about all the work that you've done since. I think it's interesting. I didn't realize that you were in San Francisco at the, in San Francisco before you went to Cranbrook. And so, you know, you were close to, to, Rudy and Susanna, did you did you know they were that close and that like that was happening right there? Well, I'll tell you one thing that happened because the people I was working around knew how I was kind of feeling about my job. Okay. Mm-hmm. And they said, you know, there's this lecture happening at CCA, which is the school where I actually teach now. Uh, mm-hmm. And my, the, my job was in Oakland and this was at their Oakland campus. And they said, you should go see this guy. I didn't know who it was. Uh, I, I knew nothing about Emigre at the time. Okay. Uh, but they said, why don't you just go to that lecture? And so I did. And it was Rudy and Susanna. And they gave this lecture. And I, it just blew my mind. It just, you know, about like what was yeah. happening in this whole world. And so I remember I ran out the very next day to find the latest copy of Emigre <laughs> magazine. Yeah. And it happened to be the one that featured uh, Ed Fella and Pete Schroeders. And I remember getting the magazine and opening it up and looking at Ed's work. And I just didn't get it. I just, yeah. you know, it took me, I had to read all the essays and things, but I just thought, oh my God, here's this guy who's like doing everything wrong. Uh, what's happening in design? You know, it, yeah. it, it, it became this kind of thing where I, I didn't know the theory behind all of this. But mm-hmm. 
what I knew is I wanted to know. And so I, and that all, all that convinced me that I wanted to go to the, what I perceived was the most difficult, challenging place I could go. And that was Cranbrook, because that's where these people were coming out of. And I wanted to understand all this stuff. And so that just made me very hungry for it. And I remember I wrote Rudy a letter because I was trying to decide where to go to school for sure. Mm. And he wrote me back. I still have the letter saying, Uh whatever you do, if you go to grad school, don't go to grad school in design. Take, you know, do it in any other subject mm. except design. And I'm kind of glad I didn't listen to him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Do you, I have, I have two questions about, about Cranbrook. I mean, I, I have, a, I could ask you a lot of questions about Cranbrook, yeah, yeah. but I, I, I have two questions kind of hearing you talk about this and, and they're both about the McCoys and about, about Kathy telling you, mm-hmm. you know, that you should wait. And I'm, I, do you think that she was right that you ended up having a better experience there waiting? And then I would love to hear about her influence on you and the way you think about design. And the reason I ask that is I feel like, like Kathy McCoy is such a, does not get the credit that she deserves in shaping Mm -hmm. so much of how we talk about design today. And and that kind of nineties era, a lot of that was coming from, you're like you're what you said it was coming from Cranbrook it was coming from from the way she was teaching what was that like kind of being there and the influence that she had on you Mm -hmm. um so uh, to answer your first question I suspect she was right uh, although uh, you know I I, I think that you know she was willing to have me go if Mm -hmm. I did all of this reading ahead of time and and I suspect that she was probably right because she kind of knew what I was missing. It was my own decision not to like spend the summer reading and trying to prepare. Uh, But, but I, she had a point, although it wasn't like then in the ensuing 10 years, I read up on design. I, I, I didn't, I should have, but I just kind of, erase that whole chapter figuring no i made Mm. this other decision and that's Mm. my path i see so had i like kind of pushed her to give me a reading list i suppose then i might have tackled it but i didn't even do that so Mm -hmm. uh that was a a bad thing on my part um but when i finally did go um it, it, it was a really interesting experience because in many ways, Kathy stayed in the background. She, mm. you know, she, she, she was less of an overt teacher as much as she was a facilitator, I felt. Mm. And because I was an older student, you know, then I was maybe not, I, I think I might have been the oldest student there at the time. Um, I felt much more of a rapport with her because I kind of, I was very self-motivated and self-directed. And so she was really good at suggesting things, suggesting things to read, uh, suggesting artists to look up, uh, that kind of thing. And of course, this was at a, at a, a pre-internet time. Mm-hmm. So any kind of, any names that you heard, any ideas, you had to go look them up in the library and, and try to find something about them right so Mm -hmm. so each each thing was was an effort you had to kind of cross a threshold and put in the effort to look these people up and i think all of that really helped Uh, a lot of it a a lot of it was like uh, books that were circulating around and then you it 
they would land in your lap and you would read it and you could take from it what you wanted. Mm -hmm. Um, all of that kind of thing was really, was really how she uh, approached it. And so we got along really well. Um, I felt, uh, and that wasn't true for everybody. You know, Mm -hmm. she, she really, I think if, if you were self-driven and self-motivated, she was behind you all the way. But if you seem to take advantage of the time there and and didn't really uh, apply yourself, uh, there wasn't a lot she could do for you. And so that so so it was it was a good place for me. It's not necessarily a good place for everybody, but but it it worked well. And uh, and then she was really helpful. Once I graduated, she's the one that kind of hooked me up with the people of Speak Magazine who are looking mm. for a designer. And she brought us together, uh, and that that kind of helped helped me start to get a you know get that kind of work and and to do the kind of design that I'm doing today. And, and did you did you feel like that you know going to Speak Magazine and then the career that you've had since does that um, or or I mean, let me let me be more specific the career that you've had as a designer since. Um, did that feed that kind of itch or that interest that you had pre Cranbrook of the type of work that you were interested in and, and wanted to do? Cause it seems like, it seems like, you know, what you were kind of talking about of wanting to do before Cranbrook, that that's what you've been able to do. Yeah. But the funny thing is all I really wanted was to get a better job. I was perfectly <laughs> happy. What I wanted to do was just work at one of the known design firms oh, in San Got Francisco. It. And I really, uh, I didn't, I wasn't there to kind of become an independent spirit. In fact, because my dad uh, worked for himself right. and it, it created a lot of havoc in the family. I just knew in my head, I never want to run my own business because it's, <laughs> it's filled with turmoil. That's all I knew. And, yeah. and that was the absolute last thing I wanted to do. So when I came back from Cranbrook, though, I had a very strange idiosyncratic portfolio. And I would go on interviews or, or drop my portfolio off at any of these other companies, places that I wanted to work, and got zero response. Uh, mm-hmm. I think the the problem they saw was that the work at this point was so kind of self-driven and personal. And most design firms, uh, little did I know this, but but they're looking for people who can adapt themselves to the style of the person in charge of the firm, mm-hmm. which makes total sense. And I think they looked at me and saw I was older, I had this style, and I think all they imagined was there would be a lot of fights. And right. so why bring on this guy who already has his own thing and would just, you know, would not be willing to just take orders. Uh, although in my mind, that would have been fine. So <laughs> I ended up pretty much going on my own ultimately, eventually um, by default. I mean, that's kind of what I, the only thing I could do. Can Can you talk more about that? I, I think what you just said is exactly right. And feels like my experience and it feels like the experience of that many of my students have who when when they kind of ask me about looking for jobs is that they spend their time in school I spent my time in school developing a personal voice a personal style doing work that was kind of coming out of the 
my own kind of personal experiences, my students doing work coming out of their experiences. And then that, that weird balance that you have to have of, you know, bringing yourself into the work, but also knowing that you have to get jobs or that you might have to work for somebody where you, you kind of have to kind of plug in and adapt. And, you know, you said that the only way that you could do that was to, to, work on your own, but you, you've been able to kind of work with clients. And I think your, your work is fairly diverse. And I I guess maybe even as a teacher, as you're talking to students, how do you think about that as somebody who's kind of encouraging experimentation and expression and, and kind of trying different things, knowing you, you also have to get a job sometime, <laughs> you know yes, what I mean? Uh, right. And, and uh, well, you know, wh- wh- one thing to keep in mind is most of the work I do now is book design. That's the primary thing. Mm-hmm. And in book design, you have to be very careful. That's where you really have to balance yeah. the needs yeah. of the publisher, the author, the, you know, you know and the, the need as a designer to kind of create a special language to go with it. So I think that's really a good test of how to mm-hmm. balance that all and how to kind of dial your ego down a bit so that the the text and the, and you know can can shine through um but i think um what do i tell my students well okay a couple of things that i you know i i i do explain that you know one of the one of the challenges is get to getting to develop a process in which you can bring a client along with you uh mm-hmm. if you're going to try an experimental process and uh, hmm. a lot of that kind of happened accidentally, you know, because I because really the first clients I had was was basically Speak Magazine. I mean, I did some other work before that, uh, but but with Speak, the client was the publisher, and so that wasn't a problem. But after that, I started have to, working with outside clients. And I just started developing a process. And the only thing I knew how to do was to do new kind of experimental work. A lot of it was working with photography in an experimental way, but mm-hmm. bringing the client in at the very beginning. So when we set up a, a, an, a, an odd kind of photo shoot, as soon as we got the images back, bring the client in and let them see even before I know what we're going to do with them mm-hmm. as a, as a way of getting them excited about it, allowing the work to be collaborative and also giving them the freedom to say, uh, that's too far or, right. you know, you're kind of missing some aspect. And so I think by, by bringing them in all through those stages, I think it, it helps create a kind of experience where they're enjoying the process alongside you. They're not just saying, you know, come back in a month with three options, you know, because right. that's not how I like to work. That's how a lot of it is taught. And I understand a lot of clients demand it that way. But when a client approaches me, I pretty much tell them, this is the way I work. And and <laughs> they seem quite open to it, right? And, and yeah. that... It makes it a lot of, I think, a lot of fun uh, to be, you know, to be involved with them all along the way. I want to keep talking a little bit about teaching now that, you know, you were kind of talking about the things that you tell your students, um, because that's like this other strand of your career um, going back, you know, a couple decades now. um, How did you start teaching? 
<laughs> okay. Well, as you may be noticing, as as this interview proceeds, most things. Uh, I, I mentioned this before. I just I just gave a talk last week where I point out that I've never been able to steer my career in mm. any kind of path that I have in mind. Everything from <laughs> not ever wanting to work by myself, uh, not right. ever wanting to run my own business, and at the time, not ever wanting to teach. Oh, interesting. Uh, th things just kind of like land in my path, and I just sort of follow them. Uh, I don't... <laughs> It, it, and it's it's yeah. been really weird, uh, but now that I kind of look back at a lot of it, uh, every time I think that I'm now going to move in this direction, it never goes the way I plan. And uh, <laughs> I, I don't know if it's that I'm flexible or gullible or just right. <laughs> kind of just oh, I love something that. that's lost. So yeah, and so so the teaching thing. Okay, so um, at, this all began at Cranbrook again. Uh, one thing that Kathy McCoy really pushed is that when you graduate, she tells everyone or she told everyone when she was there that she wanted everyone at some point to teach. And mm. a lot of it had to do with bringing the ideas of Cranbrook out into the world. And mm. somehow by, by, by getting these people on different faculties and different schools, that way of thinking will start to weave its way into the general uh, way of looking at design. Yeah. yeah, and I think she was very, very successful in that, in yeah. that there are yeah. many teachers with that background all over the place. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, when she told me that, uh, I just sort of like gulped and thought, there's no way, because I was a very, very shy, introverted person. I mm. could barely ever stand up in front of a room to say anything. But mm. I think at Cranbrook, we had a couple of group projects and she saw that I was pretty good at sort of organizing the group and, you know, kind of giving an overview and getting that together. And she, she did take me aside and say that she particularly wanted me to consider teaching. And so it's like, oh, oh no. Uh, so right after I graduated, Lucille Tanasis, who I had met, you know, mm -hmm. a while back, we had stayed in touch. And she asked if I, they, she said, there's an opening at CCA, California College of the Arts. At the time, California of Ar College of Arts and Crafts, uh, mm -hmm. it, do, it, working in undergrad teaching typography. And I thought, okay, well, this is, you know, once again, here is the world telling me what I'm going to do now. Instead of saying, no, teaching is not really the thing I want to do. I just said, okay. And so <laughs> I started I started by co-teaching because I was too scared to do it on my own. And but, but pretty quickly, I did it. And I have found, and it it's to this day, that the classroom is one of the places that I'm most comfortable of any mm. besides my own studio in that when I am there, I feel completely at ease in yeah. command. I, I can even walk into classrooms where I've never been before when I visit schools and I have to talk to the students. I have absolute comfort there. And I would have never, ever, ever imagined that in my life uh, yeah. before. But here it's it's been this is my 27th year teaching and uh, it's become such a natural, natural thing for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way when you were talking about the kind of comfort that you feel in the classroom, and that completely 
surprised me the first time I did it. It was something I always was interested in. I thought, you yeah. know, especially, you know, when you're like an arrogant undergraduate <laughs> student watching a teacher, you're like, I could do this. Um, oh. <laughs> but I also had some interest in thinking like, this seems interesting. Uh, but I had no idea that it, as soon as I walked into the room, that it was like, oh, this is actually what I'm supposed to be doing. This is the yeah. thing about, you know, this is the thing that connects all the stuff about design that I'm, that I'm interested in. Uh, so yeah. I know exactly, I know exactly what you mean. And I, the thing that, the reason I wanted to talk to you about teaching is because it does seem like it's a big part of your work, but it also, from the outside, as someone who's kind of watched your career for a while, it seems like being in the classroom has actually influenced all the other work too. And I think the kind of uh, the more personal work that you do, the kind of formal experiments, the the photography, the drawing, that all seems like uh, stuff that comes out of the classroom, comes out of that kind of experimentation. Do you have thoughts on how being a teacher has actually kind of changed how you think about being a designer? Oh, definitely. Um, particularly in the kind of work that I'm doing now, uh, mm -hmm. Originally, a lot of it was me projecting my way of thinking about design onto the classroom, right? Mm. And trying to get the students to understand about self-generated work, about personal work, about, you know, bringing in their own voice and all of that. But one class in particular called Form Studio uh, is something that began... Um, well, it, it, we just had our 20th year. Uh, uh, we had a, a show with mm. John Sueda organized a, a, an exhibition. Yeah of 20 years of this one particular class. Um, and this is how it started, uh, because the, this class was, it became very influential in, in my understanding about design and visual culture and influential in the work I'm doing now. Uh, I, I had been teaching a, a typography class. Uh, it was an advanced type class uh, at CCA. And what I found, one of the projects that, that I would give the students was a, um, they have to find a location or I give them a location in San Francisco and they have to go there and explore it and, you know, make recordings, photograph it and all of that stuff and then do a poster about it. Mm -hmm. And so the first couple of weeks are the exploratory stage and they all went out and they were incredibly enthusiastic. They brought back great photographs and and like sound recordings and transcriptions and all kinds of things. They were just so into it. And then at a certain point, I have to say, okay, now it's time to design the poster. And mm. suddenly the air just left the room. <laughs> Everyone, it became dreary. Yeah. The work became like nightmarishly difficult. Everything became forced and ugly. And I just couldn't, I wondered like, what happened? Where did the spirit go? And, and it made me just wonder what would happen if I had a class where I never ever said, now it's time to make a poster. That right. it just was a series of explorations and discoveries and all of that. And so I created this kind of experimental class as a, uh, it was an elective kind of class. Uh, ultimately it's called Form Studio. And that's what I tried. Uh, I thought I had no idea it was going to work. Uh, I had, I really was afraid that like maybe after four weeks, they would just get bored and I'd have to come up with another project. 
But yeah. I thought, let's just give it a try. And so I just gave everybody these basic materials, just this cheap stuff that I would buy at, you know, drugstores and things. And I gave them that and had them like start to explore. And it was it was really exciting. So these were all uh, upper level undergrads. And what I found was they were so hungry because all of their work pretty much at that point was was design projects where there was an imaginary client or, you know, they were doing Mm -hmm. logos and identities. Mm -hmm. They were doing posters for movies, all of this. And finally, someone was just kind of setting them free. And yeah. they just they just ate it up. And I was just astonished. The very first class, uh, I still have um, a lot of the uh, of the work. I was so amazed by it that I thought I need to make a book about this. And so I photographed like all their work uh, mm. and they're all in slides. And so I have a lot of the original work from that very first class because it was so amazing to me. And they just took the work and they moved and they did some photography. But at that time, this was pre-digital camera. Mm-hmm. So photography was expensive and time consuming because you had to process the the, the, the film or send it yeah. out and then get it back. And so a lot of them went immediately to drawing and printmaking and painting and all of these other strategies. So photography was just one thing among many. And there, it was just this exuberance and willingness to go deeper and deeper. The other aspect of the class, though, is I had no idea how to talk about this stuff. I had never right. taught you know, abstract stuff. Everything used to have, you know, there was a right. concept and, and all. And so suddenly mm-hmm. I was forced to develop and learn how to create a dialogue that was both motivating to the students and dealt with the work on its own terms as opposed to its effectiveness as a communication or its response to a client. Suddenly, those were not uh, um, part of the equation. So it was a real learning process for me and for the students. And uh, uh, after like a year and a half, we moved it to the the brand new grad program, which was which was begun by Lucille Tanasis again. See, she figures a lot in my story. Yeah. And I, I worked with her to develop the original curriculum, and I proposed that we make Form Studio the beginning uh, studio class of the graduate program. Mm-hmm. And it, it, that's where it started and, uh, uh, in the graduate level, and that's where it is to this day. So, you know, like 18 years later, it is still the opening class for the graduate program. But here's the difference, is that at a graduate level, suddenly you get the skeptics because these are, you know, when you're dealing with undergrads, right, this is their right. you know, fourth year and they're hungry for this. But grads at the beginning, you know, they come in, they've been working in the world. They're making a big investment, both in time and money. And they are, a lot of them are looking at, I'm going to go to grad school because I want to change the world, right? I'm tired of designing in a, in a boring design office, just like I was, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, want, I want to do something important in design. I want to learn. And then here it is, their very first studio class. I give them a box of paper clips and say, go explore this. You can imagine how skeptical they yeah. are. Like, yeah. Yeah. wait a minute, I'm not in kindergarten. What's going on here? So I have to, I have to change my, my, my whole way of working with the class to convince them, to sell them on the idea 
that this is it's not about learning to work with paper clips, right? That is not what I'm trying mm -hmm. to teach you. Mm -hmm. It's about exploring, developing a dialogue, learning to um, learning to use your work as a generator of more work uh, without being told. Uh, so, so, and learning how to be self-critical because, you know, once you're out in the world, you, it's really important for you to be your toughest critic. So all of this stuff, and it begins the kind of conversation about design that goes beyond, again, clients and communication and into the idea of, of how visual material works on the eye, how we respond right. to abstraction. That's something that might make us feel uncomfortable or, you know, uh, uh, make us might feel unbalanced or yeah. make us desire to head towards it. These kinds of things, which are very much a kind of gestalt looking at design and these visual strategies. So that's and So by doing that and then and then what happened for me is I decided at one point that I needed to do the same process myself. Yeah. So when I start, I've been using photography a lot in my work. Um, but I decided to now, can I start just using photography as a way to just create work? And it, 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 there are a lot of steps along the way, but eventually I, I had a sabbatical year where I really put myself through this process, uh, pretty seriously. And now one thing I make my students do, I didn't do it first, but very quickly I've made them work without color. So everything mm. is black and white. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a combination of photography and drawing. Uh, I found that what happened was once we got a lot e cheap color printers, everything was in color, and so everything could kind of look cool. Oh, and right. It, yeah, and, and bright yeah. colors often masked really kind of bad work. And right. so I made them discount color um, so that we could really focus on the form and they didn't have color to fall back on. So I decided when I was working, I needed to put myself through that same process. So I got rid of all color in my photography work. Uh, and and I, that was only supposed to be for a couple of months just to see what mm. it was like. But that was about uh, three years ago. And I'm, you know, I do yeah. color, I do, I do some of my work is in color, but the, the kind of hardcore uh, photo work that I do is mostly in black and white. The, I, I love everything about what you just said. I want to talk. I want to talk about the photography in a second, but I have a couple. Mm -hmm. I, I have like a couple thoughts that maybe will turn into a question. I just kind of want to see what you think about a couple of things. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to try to try to organize this a bit because I, I really like everything that you just said. Talking about that form studio class, I was just nodding vigorously in agreement. Um, <laughs> something I've been thinking about, and I've been talking about this with my students a little bit too, is how the word experimental, when we talk about experimental graphic design, for mm -hmm. example, has kind of devolved into just anything that is not modernist is now called experimental. Yeah. And I think a lot of what we call experimental design now actually isn't experimental at all. A lot of it actually kind of looks the same and the processes are the same. And so what I like about that class, what I like about that process is that it's kind of taking back this word experimental and is actually using experiments very literally. Um, and I like that that's happening through these formal experiments. And I feel like I am 
probably more guilty of this than than anybody is that I can sometimes lean too far on like the theory side or the concept or the idea that the form itself actually gets lost or or degraded in some way. And so I really like this idea of just focusing on form and thinking about what forms we can create and how we can experiment with form. Um, and I guess like the, the, so that's just me just saying, I love what you were saying and that I, I agree. <laughs> um, I, I'm curious. It's interesting to, to, for me to hear you say that, you know, you were kind of doing this and then realizing, Hey, I have to do this myself also. Uh, and I was, I was kind of curious if you could talk a little bit more about that because I'm also always telling my students, you know, to be experimenting with things, to be kind of like trying things, to like kind of just constantly be making things. That's how I was when I was a student. Um, I'm embarrassed to admit, I like I don't do that very much now, and I want to get back <laughs> to that. I I want to kind of get back to that that almost like novice or amateur or just I'm just gonna play even, you know, I'm just going to experiment. And what was that like for you when you kind of then got into that process? Or or how did you, you know, make time for that or, or say, hey, this is something that I have to, I have to do for myself? Yeah. Okay, well, first, let me let me talk a bit about what you said before, because I think mm. it's, it's, it's really significant. Um, about experimentation. Yeah, mm -hmm. I think that what started to happen, and it happened at CCA a lot, um, is that when students were told to do something experimental, what they were really being told is to go wild or go crazy. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that is so not, to me, what experimentation is. The right. problem is that experimentation, in order to really be effective, requires analysis, not just the making, but then the inspecting of the making and the talking about the making and the critique of the making. And that's the part that's always missing in this because most people don't know how to talk about that kind of work, except that's cool or keep going right. or right. wow, that's crazy. And those aren't effective. Those aren't valuable ways yeah. of talking about it. And so I really had to do a real deep dive in understanding the ways of of discussing this work as a series of experiments that keep generating further ones and the only way they can generate further work is by looking at the work making an assessment deciding which things are successful which things aren't successful understanding why you find them successful or unsuccessful mm -hmm. and then mm -hmm. taking those those bits and moving them into the next set of studies that you do. And that to right. me is really a serious experimental process that becomes self-generating. The, the work, once you start getting into that process, the work generates itself. It becomes a machine that will provide you with more and more things to look at and things to think about. If you don't do that, you get used up. The work you start to run out of ideas, and you hit a wall, and everything goes blank because you have right. not developed a process that allows the analysis to then move you forward. Now, I really think that formal research is a kind of design research, and I feel mm -hmm. really frustrated when people talk about design thinking and design research, but they almost never apply it to the idea of formal investigation, because that's really 
that, that that's so key to it all. And uh, I feel, and I've, I've felt this way for a really long time, that concept is way overrated because mm. you can have a great concept, but if you can't attach a form to it or let a form generate from it that right. is compelling in one way or another or involves a way of talking about it, then the concept dies. And mm -hmm. I, I, I really think the two can go work hand in hand. A concept is formed as you're working on the form. It isn't right. that the concept, the, the clever concept comes first, and then you just flip through catalogs of potential form to as a as a container for yeah, it yeah, and then you're yeah. done and and, and right. i think that's the way a lot of design is taught and that's the way a lot of students start to work especially when you can kind of zip through lots of form online and i'm right. that's why i think once you teach students how to generate form from nothing uh, then they have this great power that they're never going to be reliant on what happens to be cool at the moment. Because when I look at the work that the, the students do in the form studio, none of it is current or not current. It's not hip or not hip. It's, it starts to feel completely outside of time. And so I really right. look at form studio as a way of looking at design as an art practice as opposed mm. to a commerce practice. Mm. And I think that that is a really important thing. And in an art practice, everything you do builds on the things you've done before. It becomes a continual right. set right. of sketches, studies, experiments, some of which get realized into full-on final works, others that just keep moving along in the background. And so I think starting to see your work as the way an artist also works, including the kind of critique that an artist does, I think is a really healthy and valuable way of understanding how design works, that it isn't always, it doesn't yeah. always have to be in service of a client. And I think starting to see that, and a lot of that really developed through this class I taught, when I had to start doing this, I yeah. could start taking this into my own practice. And then can I start to make even client work that I do part of an art practice and not just a I'm here to serve the client. And so that's part of developing a, uh, a methodology where I can bring the client in and they start to get mm. involved in what I'm doing for them as a form of art practice and not just I'm here to solve your problem. Here's a solution. And, right. and that's just the way I see it. And so what I want with my students is I'm not trying to convince them that this is the way to work at all. All I want to do is to introduce them to this as a possibility and give them this freedom and chance to, to taste this and see what it's like if they want to carry this forward into their own work, whether in school or out. Terrific. They now have this tool in their toolbox. Right. A lot of the students kind of, well, this is really not for them. They're much more interested in other aspects of design, and that's totally fine. I just think it's really critical, particularly at a grad level, to allow students to see what this is like to work this way. And then I show them yeah. my own work to say, you know, I, I practice what I preach. Here's the kinds of things I'm doing. Even I show them, you know, professional work that I'm doing that is still in early stages and explain, mm. you know, this is how I'm bringing the exactly what you're doing in the classroom into what I'm doing. And that 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 connects to the photography work a little bit too, which I do want to talk about as we kind of head into the the end of the conversation. Because I got sure. I got the new book, What I Know About Photography, that you and and John uh, put together, mm -hmm. and 
I read it and, you know, basically as soon as I finished, I emailed you to say, I, I want to talk to you for the podcast. Um, <laughs> but the something that struck me in the book is I did not realize that you were approaching your photography work as a kind of purely art practice, that you were kind of going to photography shows, you were kind of getting critiqued, that you saw this as a completely different thing and that you wanted the photography work to stand on its own, not to be, I am a designer who does photography, but that this could be photographic work. Um, can you talk about what, I mean, why you want to do that and also how, why you're kind of doing that now, despite the fact that photography has been a part of your entire life? Um, what, what recently has changed that has kind of made you make that turn? Huh. Uh, well, okay. This is yet another one of those accidents that like <laughs> right, landed on my doorstep. Uh, <laughs> right. So it it really uh, the 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 kind of setup of how this really began is I decorated my office with photographs because I I would use photography in a lot of uh, uh, you know magazine work illustration work that mm -hmm. I would do I would experiment with type and the camera these kinds of things and what would happen is I would end up with folders filled with studies that would just live mm -hmm. on my desktop of my laptop and I would never be able to look through them again and as it happens I, when I had to move to a new studio uh, at that time, I found out that I, I thought that getting prints of all of these photographs was going to be really expensive. But then I found that Walgreens, and this is this is I guess this could be a plug for Walgreens. If you wait for a sale, uh, their online photo service, you can get prints for nine cents a piece. And so mm -hmm. I just went nuts and I like emptied out all the folders into four by six formats. Mm. And I sent thousands and thousands of these files uh, through on, uh, the online service to get prints made. And it was fantastic. And I just used my whole studio to pin these up on the walls. And that mm. way I could kind of see all of these studies and I could kind of swim in this work, which really helped me when I'm you know trying to think of new things, I can look back at this whole catalog of of studies that I did and right. help come up with, you know, the, the next thing I want to do. I, I like to have everything out in the world and not hidden away. Uh, and so what happened was uh, John Sueda, he was uh, curating his, his show, All Possible Futures. Mm. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. And he came by my office just to look for some design work that might want to be in the show. And so he this was the first time he saw the studio with all this photography up on the wall. And he just kind of jokingly said, oh, it would be kind of cool if we could just take one of these walls and put it in the gallery. Mm, yeah. Ha, 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 ha. Well, okay. <laughs> then that turned into, well, why don't we do that? Uh, and so I just decided instead of just transferring the photos from the wall to the gallery, I wanted to do it all new. I wanted to take pictures specifically for this. Uh, just as a challenge to myself. And so mm -hmm. this ended up being the very first time any of my photography was put out into the world, not as a client-based thing, but just mm -hmm. as its own work uh, it, it, within a gallery space or in the public in general. And so it was a test for me about can I, you know, because I had to shoot thousands and thousands of pictures 
and just bring them to the gallery and and do it on site. So that was always a challenge. It was kind of a game and kind of a dare to see if I could make it work. And it was very exciting. And I was really happy with the results. And that then led to other other opportunities. And then through many different steps, it led to the kind of work that I'm doing now, which still is based on the same thing of pinning the the actual prints up with push pins, uh, working it, working the the arrangement out that way, and then uh, recreating that with the, the the digital files. So I still work mm. the same way I did that I did when I put the pictures up on my wall uh, for private. I I still I need that component that's analog that these have to come back as prints as rectangular pieces of paper that i right. then have to deal with uh as the physicality of it and then be faithful to that when i retranslate it uh digitally so i th that got me interested in the idea of photography in the gallery and i had never really thought about it in a serious way i mean i've always been somewhat interested in photography but i started to be really interested in this process and I was just kind of working on my own in this realm of creating these things as I started to move into black and white. And I had no way of judging is, is what I'm doing even valid in the photo world or not, mm -hmm. you know? And so I started to just take some of the work. I would invite some people over who were more in, in photography and just have them come over to my studio and talk to me about it because I didn't even know what the language of people within photography was as opposed to right. design. And right. I felt that the, the problem I had is that anyone in design will look at it and say, hey, that's great, that's cool. And they would talk to, about it as like design. And I was interested in what the difference is between them. And there is quite a bit of difference and then I also felt like I didn't want to be considered a dilettante. And I feel that in general, mm -hmm. designers keep getting caught in this this realm designers you know have as as you know have the ability to work in many different media mm -hmm. uh they can work in music they can work in in film and video and but what i find is that very often they get perceived as dilettantes by the people right. who really put their heart and soul into these other media designers usually waltz in when there is software that makes doing it easy. And right. so like designers all right. become musicians when you can do the whole thing on your laptop, but they never studied <laughs> music. They never were right. They were, they were never critiqued within music programs. They never had to really struggle with right. how to yeah. put it together. And I've, and, and so what started to happen is, with the photography, as soon as I told anyone that I'm really a designer, boom, the immediate response in their mind was that I just got myself a camera and took mm. a few pictures and look at me, I'm a photographer now. And so there was a real resistance because whenever designers huh. do this, they always just assume, oh, right? Designers always think it's easy. It's like, and it's probably happened to you too. It's happened to me where oh, yeah. a, fine, yeah. a fine artist has just learned InDesign and now they think they're yeah. a graphic designer, right? Oh, oh yeah. you just make yeah. a rectangle and you put type in it. Look, I'm a designer. <laughs> and you think like how insulting that is for people who've 
studied design. Well, the same thing happens when designers do that yeah. in other pursuits. Yeah. And I think designers often just pay no attention to that. And that's why a lot of designers who are doing, I think, really interesting work in these other fields are completely unknown in, the, in those fields, that it doesn't matter. And I really wanted to be part of the conversation in photography. I didn't want to be just lumped on the side uh, as someone who just happens to do this work. I really wanted it to be, I, I wanted harsh critique because from my teaching, I understood how important really serious critique is. And that is the only way to get better. I really believe that, that it's almost impossible to completely get better just from your own willpower. You need critique within that world. And I found that so many designers who work, like who maybe are creating music, they will not take their their work. And I always encourage my students to do this, take it to one of the music instructors and have them mm. talk to you seriously mm. about it. So, some of my students are interested in making video. And I tell them, I really think that you should get as one of your advisors, someone in the film program, because they can talk to you within the context of that. Now, the interesting thing about this whole way of thinking is that it goes right back to Cranbrook, because Hmm. Cranbrook, at the end of every year, you put all of your work in a room. And the instructors, and you know, at Cranbrook, there's only one instructor per field, per discipline. They all come in and they talk to you about the work, but it's always from their perspective. So you get someone from metals and you get someone from sculpture talking to you about your design work. And at first, we in design felt very put off by this because, oh, none of these people understand design. How dare they come in and start talking to us about type? What do they know? But Mm -hmm. really that kind of way of learning to look about look at your work through different frameworks and and listen instead of feel like you have to defend it listen to the way they talk about your work was incredibly valuable to me even i know i did this huge project at cranbrook that involved uh uh doing uh, uh these uh type uh rubber stamping type onto bed sheets it's i'm not going to mm. get into the details of it but it involves <laughs> fabric and 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 so the the instructor from from uh, uh, the fabric de- uh, department um, came in and he just tore me to shreds mm. because he kind of this is what he said and it's resonated to this day. It's like how dare you just take up working with textiles, knowing that there's a whole textile department here with people who are devoted to it, who Mm. could really talk to you about it and really let you understand how to work with textiles, what the meaning is, and really enrich this. You just think it's as easy as getting a bunch of bed sheets and sticking type on it and thinking that you're now a textile designer. And it's like, oh my God. And I was just totally rattled by that. But he was absolutely right. Absolutely right. And so that has stayed with me uh, forever. And that's why when I do the photo work, I really want to talk to people in photography and have them talk to me at that level. Even if it's this stuff is terrible, whatever they have to say, uh, I really respond to that and really respect that and, and take it very, very seriously when they do that. So I, I want to I wanna kind of like bring this back to the design work 
itself. Yeah. And I, I'm sorry that I keep kind of like asking you these questions in pairs. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested in the relationship between your design work and your photography work historically and how you saw those two things because you were talking about you would like take photos for kind of studies or or you know kind of to be a type of research to the design but now that you're thinking about photography as a fine art practice is there a relationship to the design work or the client work that you're doing or how do those start to talk to each other uh very much so and and that was uh, i wasn't sure that that was going to happen uh, so it's I, like you, you said, it's always been in there. It, it was always a process that I would use a methodology when I wanted to do type that really got going with Speak Magazine, although mm -hmm. the relationship of photography and design happened uh, quite a bit earlier. Uh, for one thing, my dad was a wedding photographer, so we always had a dark room at home. In fact, I kind of assumed that every household had a dark room because we always <laughs> we kind of grew up with one. And that just was a natural component of, of mm -hmm. being at home. Uh, and so I already was somewhat familiar with, with that whole realm. But when I went to, yeah, when I went to Cranbrook, uh, you kind of have to, one thing that you find out very quickly is that you have to come up with your own topics that you're interested in. It's like you're, you, you have a couple right. of assignments, but generally most of the work you have to decide, well, I uh, I thought, well, okay, how about photography? Because I know a little bit about that. I know what my dad did. So I started looking for books about photography. And I found that all of the books in the library about photography were all theoretical. And none of them dealt with the kind of work that my dad did, which was it was photography, right? And it was legitimate. Mm -hmm. It wasn't really yeah. an art form, but it served a really important function for people who would hire him, right? And so, in fact, the original essay, What I Know About Photography, was in response to the fact right. that what I know about photography is very different than the theoretical side of it, mm. which, you know, over the years has changed as I've gotten more and more interested in the theoretical side. Um, but so photography was always a method that I used to make design. However, when I started use, doing the photography for, for its own sake, the process that I did about creating these, these the, the relationship between digital to analog and back to digital, I started seeing that there were strategies I could use where instead of working with just materials, which is what I generally work with, what if type was considered one of the materials I was going to use? And so for like some covers and things that I would do, what if I took some of the words I needed and just intersected it with the materials and did photo studies just like mm. I did as pure photography? But in this time, this type, this way, um, type was just one of the materials. And that's that actually started to work really well. And so it became this uh, uh, where where the photo practice and the strategies in that practice started to now influence the way I look at design, at least some design, not really the book design part, but other aspects of it. And uh, I, I've, I've done some posters using this process and and some book covers to doing this process. Uh, and now I'm doing a, a whole series of illustrations that use this process uh, to go within mm -hmm. a book. So it's been a really interesting back and forth that the, this dialogue uh, is working really well. Uh, one aspect of the photography that is kind of interesting to me is that 
I don't care about any of the individual pictures. They're all just material. To me, the individual pictures are kind of like just the text or just words. It's how they all go together. It's how they start to combine to create larger communities of images. That's what I'm interested in. And that's really a lot of what design is like, where it's a bunch of these different things. It's a combination of text and image and page, all of these things that fit together to then create an experience. And that's what I find interesting mm -hmm. in both cases. And I find that that really resonates uh, in either direction for me. I'm curious what you're thinking about now. What's next for you? Where do you kind of see these multiple practices going? Um, do you have kind of other projects that you're working on, other things that you're thinking about or kind of uh, working on right now? Yeah, well, okay, I'm, I'm still doing the photography, although it's one of those things that I have to kind of shoehorn it in between regular paying jobs uh, <laughs> because the photography doesn't really pay, at least not this kind of work. And I never did it for that reason. So, but therefore I really, you know, way back when, when you talked about how you have to kind of develop a practice where you have to make money too. Well, that's the book right. design part. So this works around it. I'm always still collecting lots of materials and lots of objects and things to photograph. And so my apartment here is overflowing with material that is just waiting to be photographed. But one thing I'm starting to be interested in now is somehow working with photography and design uh, in creating a, 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 a literal language between the two in that I'm, I'm, mm. I'm doing this series that's called The New Machinery. That's a yeah. lot of the black and white abstract work. But now I'm, I'm starting to think about uh, what if I start creating manuals for the machines? So I take one and mm. then I create a design project that involves taking the machine apart, <laughs> looking at how the different functions. And because I, I just in a flea market, I, I got these old manuals of of uh, uh, how to how to how to surface machines, how to take them apart. Uh, that's what they were for. These complex uh, mm. um, uh, industrial machines and the way the, the kind of whole language of the manual, I thought, would be a really interesting component to work next to the images. And so I start to really dig deeper into not just the image as just a visual experience, but there becomes a text that goes alongside it. And I thought oh, that that would be, yeah, I haven't done that yet, but I, I'm really excited about the prospects of how that might start to come together and take best advantage of both. But beginning with the photography and moving it into design as opposed to the other way around where you have a design project and you need right. photographs for it. It's, it's the other way. And because all of these new machinery things are literally composed of parts, right? They're composed of individual photographs. There's my way of taking the machine apart. I can start uh, uh, doing a kind of mm -hmm, book that shows mm -hmm. all the individual images and then talk about them as components and parts for a larger thing. So that's that's something that I'm, I'm really excited about, but I have to find a, a, a period of free time where I can delve <laughs> Right, of course. Yes, of course. Yeah. Right. So, so that's, yeah. that's waiting. That's, that's, that's on the side burner, just ready to boil over. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
I love that. That's how that's how that's such a smart idea too. And I think that's a great way to to kind of wrap up this conversation. This was so fun and interesting to me. I'm a big fan of your work and and the way that you think about all of this. Uh, I really admire and and feel like I learned a lot from. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Well, thanks, Jared. This episode was recorded on October 30th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.